So he's following in the footsteps of his father, whom basically everybody in Israel loved. Right? He was patient. He allows God to overthrow the wicked King Saul. And he is there, and he is a man after God's own heart. And even, even in his time of struggle, he still comes out on the other side praising the Lord, and the Lord has favor upon him. And so Solomon comes along and is taking over this kingdom, right? And David has won battle after battle, war after war. And so David, I mean, Solomon is here, and I'm sure he's feeling like he is not equipped to do the job that God has put in front of him. And then God gives them this choice, right? You can have anything that you want. And Solomon makes the right choice, right? He chooses wisdom above riches, above influence. I mean, he already has power, but he chooses wisdom because he wants to be a wise king. But we know, right, all winter long we looked at the book of Ecclesiastes and we know that Solomon, even with all of that wisdom that God gifted him, he made some of the most colossal mistakes that any human being has ever made. And so the point is that your wisdom is not enough, that knowing the right thing to do is not enough. And that is exactly what Paul is hammering into us in these verses that we read earlier. This is the point of this whole, these two paragraphs, right? Knowing is not enough. You can know God's will. You can know what he has, his code, his rules, right? You can even know it well enough that you can go around and teach it, but knowing it is not enough. So as we start here in verse 17, you call yourself a Jew. Now I know that probably none of us are uh, nationally Jewish, right? Most of us do not understand that as our identity, but I think it's safe to say that when we read this, we can, this is relating to us, right? If you are calling yourself a Jew, if you are calling yourself a Christian, if you're calling yourself a follower of God, then everything that proceeds applies to us. You are a follower of God and you rely on the law. Now, once again, this might at face value miss, right? We might think, well, I don't rely on the law. I rely on God's grace. But really, we do rely on the law, right? Because we have to have somebody. We have to have God's rule to help us in our moral decisions, right? We, we recognize that we're not relying on the law for our salvation. It's not what saves us. But it is the thing that is going to help us to know what is right and wrong. Last week we looked at and we saw that the law of God is written on our hearts. But Jeremiah also tells us what? What is it about our hearts? It is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? Right? You're in mind. Even with the Holy Spirit, our heart will lead us astray. And so, we have to rely on the law. When we get confused and we get jumbled up and we think, wait, is this actually the right thing? I don't remember. I don't know. We go back to God's law we go back to his word revealed to us, and it sets us straight. It puts us back on the path if we wander off. And so we need it. We need God's law. We rely on it, right? We are, um, we are people who are following after God. We are relying on God's law. And then he says, if you know God's will and approve what is excellent. Now, this is a tricky one. Because I don't think that many Christians, I, I interact with a lot of people who I don't think they understand what God's will is and how he reveals it. Um, and 
because when we think about God's will for our life, we think about like the big decisions. What is God's will for me? And do I take this new job? Do I move a thousand miles across the country to a new place? Um, for those of you, you know, we had, we saw, we, we honored these three students who graduated high school last year. Like they're asking a lot of these questions, right? What college do I go to? Do I go to college? Who, what kind of career should I pursue? Should I get married? Who should I marry? All these big questions. And we sort of lump those as God's will, but the small stuff, we don't really ever think of it in those terms. The reality is that the Bible rarely speaks to the big questions, and it often speaks to the small stuff. Two very, very clear verses in the scripture, one of them, the will of God is this, that you would be thankful in all situations. The will of God for you is this, that you would be sanctified. See, we are called to be obedient to God. There's lots of really small commands that God gives us. And for us to follow those, that is God's will. So when you're dealing with these bigger questions, my experience has showed me in my life so far that God rarely answers those big questions with a resounding like yes or no. Or like I remember when I was graduating high school and I, I knew that God was calling me into the ministry so I was trying to decide between these two like big schools and they both had programs that were going to kind of foster me along my way in ministry and I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and God never booming voice said to me go to this school right he didn't he, it didn't happen he's revealed his word to me and I think when we have those big decisions a lot of the times God is silent because he's he already gave us the answer, right? Go to the Word. You want, you're, you're wondering, should you take a new job? Ask yourself, is it going to make you more sanctified? You see, if the job you have already is so taxing that you don't make it to church as much as you want and you never get to go to home group and you don't get to be a, a volunteer for a wanna for all the ministries that are happening, but the new job is going to be even more hours... You will not be sanctified by taking that job, right? If you have less time, if you already feel like you're neglecting your relationship with the Lord because of work, and a new job requires more time, it will not make you more sanctified. It's probably not a good idea, right? You don't have to pray, Lord, should I take it? Lord, should I take it? And wait until he gives you the yes or no. Look to the Bible, and you will know God's will for your life. I'm not saying don't ask the question, right? Because sometimes God, God treats us like he treated Moses. I love Moses because Moses' life is like the, the polar opposites, right? So when Moses is coming back, right, into Egypt, I mean, God is like, this is who you talk to. Bring this person with you and say this exact thing. And that's what we want from God all the time. Right? We want God to tell us, look, go find that person, bring him with you, and go to this person and say these exact words. Oh, good. Whew. Okay. No, you don't even have to think, right? You just do it, right? Okay. And Moses does this for the whole plagues, right? And God is telling him exactly where to go, exactly what to do. But then they cross the Red Sea, and what does God do? Just start walking, and I'll show you which way to go. And by day, he's a He's a cloud, right? By night, he's a pillar of fire. They don't have a clue where they're going. They just say, follow me. God is, look, I will just lead you day by day by day. Sometimes, God will give you those 
Moses in the, right, Moses in the Ten Commandments kind of answers. He might boom down a direct answer to you. You should ask him. If you have a question for the Lord, I'm not telling you don't ask. You should ask, but you can't sit around paralyzed and doing nothing until you hear an answer. Sometimes God says, just start walking and I will show you the way as we go. And let's also be clear about one more thing. Our problem is not that we don't know God's will, right? That's not the reason we're not obedient. We know we should be evangelizing all the time, and we all struggle with it. We know we should be praying regularly, daily, multiple times a day, and we all struggle with it. Right? It's not that we don't know. It's not as if God revealed his secret will to you. You'd be like, oh, great, perfect. I will obey that perfectly. I will do exactly what you just told me to do. God tells us to do a lot of things that we don't obey perfectly. And so when we think about what it means to be a follower of God, relying on the law, having his will, it's a lot less specific than I think we want to think it is. It's a lot more general. God is saying, look, you want to take that job? That's okay. Is it going to make you more thankful? Is it going to make you more sanctified? Are you going to be able to obey the Lord better? Go for it. And if it's not, then don't, right? God gave you a brain. He gave you the ability to think and, and figure these things out on our own, and we go to him, and we seek his guidance, and we're always, we're always listening to the Holy Spirit's guidance in our lives, but most of the time in my life, the Lord has just said, you know what? Pros and cons, right? That seems boring. That doesn't seem very spiritual to make a pros and cons list, but like, how is this going to affect your relationship with the Lord? And that should be the first question you ask when you're trying to decide, you're trying to make big decisions, small decisions, doesn't matter. Next thing he says to us is, are you a light to those who are in darkness? So these next couple of statements are all synonymous with one another, right? You see, we all have somebody in our life that we are a light to, that we are a guide for, an instructor, or somebody that we are teaching. Might be your children, might be your grandchildren, might be your friends, might be your neighbors, might be someone in your family, somebody you work with. There is somebody in your life, whether you know it or not, whether you're recognizing it or not, that God has put in your life. Maybe it's just one person. For a lot of us, it's probably a lot of different people that we know who do not have faith in Christ, who don't know who he is, and he is calling us to teach them. He is calling us to be that light to them, to guide them. Whoever it is, we are being called to be the embodiment of knowledge and truth. And those things are coming from God. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a big task, right? That is, that is, that is a hard thing to embody, right? You and I, we're supposed to embody truth and knowledge from God to that person. Now, we may be unclear on certain doctrines, Right? We may have differing theological ideas, but in this context, who is he talking about? The blind, those who are lost in darkness. These are terms for those who are not Christians. Right? If you meet a non-Christian, it's probably not a good idea to try and talk to them about eschatology. Right? Not necessarily what they need to hear. Right? That, that is a discussion, and that is good to have, and it's good to explore these things and try and figure that out. But when you're, when you're interacting with somebody who doesn't even know who Jesus is, we just want a gospel, right? We want to present to them the gospel over and over and over again until faith is in them, until they believe, until they're accepting of Christ. We don't dig into these deeper theological ideas with somebody who is not a Christian. 
Now, if they have questions, sure, answer them, right? If there's a barrier in their life and they think, well, what about evil in the world? You don't have to just ignore questions and just jump right past that. And Well, I don't know, but let's just go back to the gospel. I don't know. Let's go. We can answer the questions, but our goal, our hope, our intent is just to over and over and over again share the gospel with those whom Paul is speaking about, right? Those who are blind, those who are in the darkness, the Gentiles who are lost. The truth and the knowledge from God is what we need to embody in the gospel. And that means all of it, right? It, it, we, we, don't, we don't shy away from the things that we know that the world hates in the sense of we don't, people don't like to be called out on their sin. People don't like to be told they're wrong. We live in a culture that kind of says you can't be wrong no matter what you do. Whatever you do is right. If it's right for you, it's right. And that's not, that's not true, right? We have to be willing to call those things out lovingly and gently right Um, now once someone has faith discipleship is important right we do want to get into those discussions we do want to talk about things and we do want to have discussions about deeper theological ideas it's not just well once we have the gospel like we're set for life moving forward we don't need to think we don't need to we don't need to explore any deeper But when we are teaching those, right, and when we are teaching in a discipleship setting, I think we need to be really careful in the way in which we teach. Because there are doctrines that are confusing. And there are doctrines, I believe, that have biblical support on both sides of the issue. Right? There have been people who have been debating the idea of predestination for hundreds of years, right? thousands of years. I know what I believe, and I stand pretty firm, and I'm like 95% sure that what I believe is right, and I think the Bible teaches it. But there are people who are way smarter than me who have debated this, right, on the other side of the aisle, and there has been no definitive answer. And so I'm going to hold to what I believe, but I am always open for someone to come and say, hey, look, I think that you're wrong about this. I think you're, you know, eschatology, gifts of the Spirit, there's lots of different things that, that I'm, I'm pretty sure I know what the Bible teaches, but I'm not 100%. And then there are those things that we should never back off of, right? We talked about a few of those things last week, right? But the gospel being one of them, we know that God calls out sin. We know that, especially in the world, of what we looked at in Romans chapter 1, that homosexuality is sin, that Sex outside of marriage is sin, right? The divorce is sin other than the few things where God shows us that it's okay, right? Abandonment or adultery. Like, the world doesn't like that. Ladies, God calls you to submit to your husband, right? The world doesn't like that. Men, we are called to love our wives the way that Christ loved the church. Men, that's hard for us. We don't, we don't want to do that. We don't want to give sacrificially. There's lots of things in the Bible that we should teach and we should never be willing to back off of because it's clear as day. There's no debate. When people want to debate it, it's because they don't like it. It's not so much that it's not there and that it's not clear. And so when we're teaching, right, when we're doing these things, when we're discipling, we should be clear, we should be careful about not taking a hard stance on things that we can't be sure of and being sure about the things that we can. So we should strive for the truth. We don't always get a definitive answer, but we should always be seeking it. Next thing is Paul challenges us to do the things that we teach. This is what the whole section is about once again, right? It's not enough to know. 
He says, look, you tell people to not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You tell people to not steal. Do you steal? That's an important part. It's, it's not enough to just know who Jesus is. It's not enough to just know that God is real and that his rules are good and right and true. We have to abide by them. Not for salvation's sake. Right? We are saved by the grace of God. We are saved by faith in Christ. But we are being called to be obedient to God. And I would say this, if we are teaching the gospel, if we have faith in Christ, then hopefully we will not ever be teaching something that we are not doing ourselves. And what I mean by that is, we talked about this last week, right? That Paul is not telling us, look, if you are struggling with the sin, then you cannot call it out in somebody else's life. You cannot challenge somebody else who is struggling just because you're struggling with it. But the way in which, the manner in which we go to somebody and we approach them when they are sinning or when they are struggling, that's everything. If we go to them in arrogance and say, how dare you do this? I see it in your life. God hates you for doing it. Whatever language people use, that's not okay. But if we go to them in full honesty saying, look, I see the struggle in your life, and I'm struggling with the same thing. Or I was struggling with that last year. I know the pain that you're experiencing. All I want to do is help you. I want to help get you up out of this pit. Like, I'm reaching my hand down to you. Grab on and let me help you get out of this. I'm a sinner too, and I'm weak too. But God has sent me to come and strengthen you so that you can stand, and I can hold you up, and I can help you recover, and I can help you fight these temptations. That's what it looks like. For us to go to another Christian, even if you're in the midst of struggling with it yourself, we have all freedom in the world to be able to go and point those things out and offer help and offer a kind and encouraging word to others. So we don't want to look down on other people who are being tempted. We want to treat them the way that Jesus did, with love. One of the things that we see over and over and over again in the New Testament when Jesus sees somebody who is sick or somebody who is suffering or somebody who is in sin, one of the most repeated phrases, and Jesus looked on them with compassion over and over and over again. That's how we should look on our brother and sister. That's how we should be looked upon ourselves when we are struggling with sin. We want to look and act with compassion with one another. Verse 24, this is something that we want to avoid, right? For as it is written, the name of God is blaspheme among the Gentiles because of you. Now, there are certain things that cause people to blaspheme God. Why? Because they have suppressed the truth, because it's truths of the Bible. It's all of those things that we mentioned before, right? The unpopular things that the Bible teaches that we as the church stand firm on. The world looks at that and says, God is a mean God, or God is angry, or whatever. God is this or that because of his own truth. We, we can't help that, right? We can't help it when people know God's truth, and they hate it, and so they blaspheme his name. We still stand on what is true in those moments. What we want to avoid as the church, as the people of God, is that we don't want people to blaspheme God's name because of the way that you and I act, the way that we treat people. The way that we speak to people, right? 
We can confront people about their sin. We can confront the non-believer or the believer. And if we're doing that with humility and with love and compassion and grace and kindness, it shouldn't cause people to want to blaspheme God's name. But if we're standing on the street corner with a sign yelling these things with hate in our heart and anger in our voice, then of course people are going to look at that and be like, I don't want to serve that God. I don't want to serve the God that these people are serving. That's not a God that seems good to me. And so we want to make sure that the way that we act and the way that we treat people would never cause somebody to want to speak ill of the Lord. Don't give reason for the world to hate God because of how you act, because of how you speak, or because of how you treat people. And then the last thing here is his argument about circumcision. So once again, he is reiterating the point again to us. It's not about the exterior. It's not about the physical sign that was given to Israel. God commands Abraham, right? He commands him to institute circumcision. He sets his people apart with a physical sign. It's a physical marker that illustrated how God's blessing was being given to the people by their posterity. Right? By their family, by this nation of people. It was a group of people, physical people in a physical place. And God is saying, I have called you out, Israel, as a group of people. A physical group. You are going to be a blessing to the entire world. Now, picture the map in your head, right, of Middle East. Right? So, in that era, Egypt is massively huge and massively influential. And then Syria and a lot of the things up northeast from there, right? And up the sea, they, there's all of these big nations. And the way that they traveled from one place to the other, the easiest place would be to what? Travel through Israel. Part of why God called them out to live by the law, to live a certain way, is that Egyptians and Assyrians, and they're traveling to and from, and they're coming through, and they're needing a place to stay, and they're watching the way these people interact, and they're looking at them, right? And if you go, like, let's say you, you, you went to an Amish country, right, and you go into the, and you think, these people don't act the same way that everybody else does. Where's their cell phone? Where's their TVs? Where's the things that I'm used to? They act very different than I do. And the Egyptians and the Assyrians and all the different people who would travel through Israel, they, they were, God called them out so that they would see this. He put them in a specific place, not only because it was fruitful and because it was good land, but because the people would be traveling through. And the Jewish people, their, the intent was that they would be welcoming, that they would be living different than the other people in the world. And they would say, huh, why are they doing it that way? I don't understand. That's the opposite of the way we do it. And why would they invite us in and give us and go and slaughter the fattened calf for us? We don't, they don't even know us. Why are they being so generous? Why are they being so kind? They were a chosen people. They were set apart physically to bless the world, but they failed miserably because of their sin. Now, the blessings of God don't come through that, right? It doesn't come through a physical setting apart of one group of people, but rather, it is a spiritual awakening in anybody, no matter where you're from. You don't have to be Jewish. You don't have to live in a certain country or be a part of a certain group of people in order 
to be following after the Lord. This is why we have no more physical sign. It doesn't come. My children are not Christians because I am a Christian and therefore. So the, the, the blessing doesn't pass through posterity, right? It, pla- it passes through faith in Jesus. Only those who have faith, whether they be my kids or whether they be kids who have parents who are not believers, it doesn't matter. It's not about that. For those who may wonder about infant baptism, right? This is how I understand. It's a carryover. Like a a Jewish baby, a male Jewish baby was circumcised no matter if he was going to follow the Lord or not. Didn't matter. The circumcision was to mark him as a part of the covenant community. And then they would grow up and make a decision whether they were going to follow God's law or not. Our Presbyterian brothers and all the other denominations who baptize children, while we obviously here at a Baptist church greatly disagree with that, I can understand where they're coming from. It's a carryover, right? They're saying we're going to baptize this baby to bring them into the covenant community even though they have not administered faith and then maybe one day they will. I don't know about you, that gets a little confusing, right? I think the Bible's clear. It teaches that we should be baptized once we have faith. Baptism is a replacement of circumcision. We have it. We give it. We do it because we have faith. It is a mark on us in the same way that circumcision was a mark. But ultimately, salvation is not about any outward sign. But Paul tells us here, right, in verse 28, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. Not by the letter. It doesn't matter what heritage you have. It doesn't matter who your parents are or were. It doesn't matter that your kids are living in your household. That's not going to save them. Nothing is going to save them but the inwardness, the inward circumcision of the heart, right? The cutting off of the flesh and allowing the spirit to come in and take over. Salvation comes by faith. And this is what Paul is telling us. It is by the Spirit. It's not by being a good person. It's not by doing certain things and avoiding certain other things. That's not what saves us. We have no ability to save ourselves. And so we have faith that God's promise is true. That Jesus lived a sinless life. That he is the only sacrifice that is able to to wash us as white as snow, right? To cleanse us of our sins. That we, we deserved to be that. We deserve to be the one on the cross, but Christ took our place. It's not enough to know it. Even the demons know it, and they shudder, and they're not saved. It's not enough to just know these things intellectually, but that we have to be consumed, conformed, and transformed by the Holy Spirit through faith, in Jesus. This is the gospel of God. This is our only hope for salvation. So if you're here this morning, you say, yep, I heard all of that. I've heard it a million times. I know it all. It's not enough. It's not enough to know it. It's not enough to be able to say your catechism or to be confirmed by a church or what all the different things that many churches do in order to say, well, then now we know for sure because they memorized all of these things. And so now they must be Christians. It's a changing of who you are on the inside and overtaking of the Holy Spirit of your life. It's faith in Jesus. If you're here this morning and you say, I know all of these things, but I don't know that. 
I don't understand that piece. I don't understand the faith. I don't understand the Holy Spirit. I'm, I'm completely, that is completely foreign to me. God is calling you, repent and believe. He will save you. He will forgive you. He is there. He is ready. He wants to see you come into salvation. You have to do more than know, but you have to believe it with everything that you are. Confess it with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you will be saved. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful for your word. And we are grateful, Lord, that we rely on your law to guide us, but we don't rely on it for our salvation. That We don't have to follow it perfectly. It's not about us. It's not about our good deeds or bad deeds. It's about Jesus and his goodness. And that he has given us his righteousness. He's gifted it to us. We don't deserve it. Nothing we've ever done could bring it about, and yet you give it to us freely. Lord, circumcise our hearts. Fill us with the Holy Spirit. Let us have belief. Let us not just know the truth of your gospel, but that we would live it out, that we would act in such a way that is pleasing to you, that is obedient to you, that is glorifying to you and to your word. Lord, we're all failing in that. Probably it looks different for each one of us. Lord, give us strength to fight temptation where we fail. Give us the courage to stand on what is good and on what is true. Give us the boldness to teach those who are in the darkness. Whoever that is, Lord, whoever you have placed in our life, Lord, that we would be an evangelist to them. Lord, we love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.